0: Hello and welcome to Timeless Truths, a sermon podcast from St. Mark Ministries in Greater Green Bay, Wisconsin. This week we continue our series, Grace is Coming to Town. In episode 20, let's join Pastor Ben Workentine as we learn about the greatest gift of all. So open up your heart, open up your Bible, and let's dig in to these timeless truths. What does it take to be known as a fan? Buddy of mine recently invited a bunch of us to go see a band named Friendship. I had never heard of them, but he had. He'd been following them for years, knew everything about them, had listened to all their music, and now they were gonna play in an out of the way bar in Appleton, and he wanted us to go along with him. What would I have needed to do to show up as a fan in a way that people would have recognized? Would I have had to buy the merchandise? know the lyrics, start going to more of their concerts, more of their gigs. To be known as a fan, you'd probably need to know more than their name, which is about all that I know at this point. What does it take to be known as a fan of Jesus, a follower of Jesus? Maybe it's something along the same lines, maybe you have to buy the merch, the jewelry or a t-shirt or put a bumper sticker on your back fender maybe you have to show up to the right venue 15 20 45 times a year maybe it's knowing all the lyrics all the answers memorize the books of the bible 50 most important passages be able to answer every objection to the christian faith Maybe you've convinced yourself if you do those things, and people will know you are a fan of Jesus. But is that really what it takes? Jesus answered that question for us. In John chapter 13, that's where we're going to be headed, where we're going to take a look here today. So if you've got your Bible or Bible app open, John 13 is where we're headed. And these are fitting words for this time of year, this season that the church has historically called Advent. Advent comes from a Latin word that means coming or arrival. And the nostalgic part of us looks back to the coming of the God-man Jesus for the first time in that manger in Bethlehem. That's why there's so many connections this time of year with Christmas, because Jesus came. But there's a part of us that leans forward during Advent season and looks ahead to the second and final time that the God-man will come on Judgment Day. We don't think about that one so often. There aren't a lot of Judgment Day songs on Christmas radio this time of year. But as fans of Jesus, we can't help but look ahead and prepare for that coming of Jesus. And it's that coming that these words help prepare us for. They're not usual words we read, because this time of year we like to read things like, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, or the people living in darkness have seen a great light, or you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah. Those passages help us look back, appropriately so. These words in John 13, they help us look forward and ask the question, what does it mean to be known as a fan of Jesus? In this season, not just the four weeks of Advent, not just the pre-Christmas season, but in this season of history between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. The disciples were wondering very much the same question. And so Jesus answers in John 13, starting at verse 34, if you've got your Bible, follow along. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. Here's what's so amazing about anything written by the eyewitness John. He writes in simple language. The vocabulary is simple, the grammar is simple, so much so that if you were a budding Greek student, you could read John off the page pretty easily. But in the midst of that simplicity, John hides a complexity, a profundity that would make even a lifelong biblical scholar, theologian of the highest order sometimes pause and scratch their head. And so it's worth us taking these 28 words of Jesus and understanding what they really mean. So let's go phrase by phrase. Jesus begins by saying, a new command I give you. That right there already should cause us to sit up and listen. Because Jesus had not been a lawgiver up to this point. God had done that through Moses in the Old Testament more than 1,500 years before Jesus lived. He had given lots of laws summarized in the Ten Commandments, but there were more than 600 laws that governed everything from dietary restrictions to marriage practices to worship practices to how, to, how the people should be governed. But Jesus doesn't give laws. He refers to them. He talks about the commandments. But the only other time Jesus gave a command, the only other time he uses this language, was to tell his disciples not to talk about his transfiguration six months before his death. Obviously a command with an expiration date. So when he says, a new command I give you, we should be stopping for a minute and asking what comes next. And I want you to imagine for just a moment that we didn't read the rest of the verse, that all you had, all you knew, was this phrase, a new command I give you. How would you expect that command to look? Well, how would you fill in that blank? A new command I give you, know the truth. A new command I give you, stand up for the truth, no matter who stands against you. A new command I give you, be morally pure. A new command I give you, find and attend the right kind of church. Is that what you would expect? Maybe. But it's certainly not what Jesus says. He cuts against the grain. He gives a far more simple and profound answer. He says simply love one another. You've maybe heard that the Greek language in which John was originally written in much of the New Testament has three words that we translate into love. The first is eros. We get the our word erotic from that word. It's a a, a desire, usually a romantic re- feeling. You could translate it as love, maybe as often you could translate it as lust. The second is phyllis. We get our word philosophy from that word. It's two Greek words brought together, love of wisdom. An audiophile loves music. A cinephile loves movies. And then there's the third word, the word that Jesus uses in this verse. Again and again and again, agape. Agape is a little bit harder to pin down because once you start studying all the ways that it's been used and who can love what or who can love whom, you find that God can love all of humanity, he can agape all of humanity, he agapes his chosen people, he agapes his son. Human beings can agape each other, they can agape God, they can agape money. And so if these were the only words, if Jesus stopped here, we might have as many questions as we have answers. What does it mean to love? How do you love? Our world loves to say love is love. What does that actually mean? And then the second question, whom should we love? Everybody? Jesus says, love one another. That second question is probably easier to answer. Let's take it. Jesus sat in that upper room with his 11 disciples. Judas had already been dismissed, sent on his mission of betrayal. So Jesus looked at those 11 men. He said, see the, see the people sitting here? The ones who carry my name too? Look at them. Love them. He'd say the same thing if you were sitting in this seat. See the people sitting in this room? See the people joining you online? Love them. Start there. Love the people who also bear my name. How? What does it mean to love? Jesus answers that question by giving an example. Notice what he says next. As I have loved you, so you must love one another as I have loved you. It means Jesus had already loved and he had set out a pattern for his love. If you've got your Bible open, if you go back to the very beginning of chapter 13, you'll see how Jesus, one of the ways that Jesus had demonstrated that love. You see what happens there? That memorable scene? Jesus washed his disciples' feet He got down on his knees and did the dirty, nasty job of washing his disciples' feet. He served them because they needed him to. So when we're thinking about what love is, Jesus demonstrates it. Love is other-centered. It puts aside my preferences, my desires, so that I can serve you in the ways that you need me to. It puts others first. But that's not all love is. Because what Jesus demonstrated His love, not just in what he had done, but what he was about to do. This is Jesus in the upper room on Thursday night. Sometimes we call that Maundy Thursday. We'll be celebrating that in the spring. But it's the same night, Jesus would then go to the Mount of Olives. He would then be arrested and betrayed. The next day he would go to the cross and he would give up his life on that cross. Demonstrating for us the second component of love love is sacrificial it dies to itself it gives up what it wants and puts it away without complaint without resentment, without a question and says I'm here for you in other words love doesn't say I love you until things get awkward between us and I'm out or I love you until it's just too much for me and then I'll ghost you. It's not love. Love is sacrificial. But it's still more than that. Because if you were to zoom all the way out and think about this time of year as we celebrate the birth of Jesus in a manger, we see another final component of the love that jesus had he showed up he came close to humanity when he could have stayed far away when he could have washed his hands he leaned in in other words love is incarnational it shows up when it's needed i can't say to my kids i love you But I'm not going to show up when you get called to the principal's office. I love you, but I'm never going to be there at your games or recitals or concerts. I love you, but I won't be available when you have questions or doubts or fears. That's not love because love is incarnational. This is the pattern of love for Jesus' followers. It's other-centered, sacrificial, incarnational. So take a hard look inward. As you look around at the people who are sitting in this room with you, is there somebody you're holding a grudge against? You're not loving them. Is there somebody you can't stand and so you won't talk to? You aren't loving them. Is there somebody you find so morally reprehensible that you wouldn't invite them to, into your home, especially at Christmas? You aren't loving them. And not loving comes at a high cost. Jesus lays it out. He says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples. It's interesting the word choice that Jesus uses here. He doesn't say, this is what it means to be a disciple. He doesn't say, this is what you have to do to be a disciple. He says, this is how everyone else will know. In other words, the love that Christians have for each other is a neon sign for outsiders looking in. It's how we demonstrate to other people that we are fans of Jesus, we are followers of Jesus. Author Colin Cruzy. Puts it this way, he says, lovelessness among believers nullifies their witness to the world and reveals them as hypocrites. Are you trying to prove that you're a fan of Jesus by the swag you wear? Or the venue you show up to? Or the money you spend? That might be the easy way to demonstrate your followership of Jesus, but it's the wrong way. That demonstration is as thick as a coat of paint. Love is the witness. So how's your witness? Maybe you're joining us as one of those outsiders, skeptical of Christian faith. Maybe you're watching, and you've had some cynical questions about Christians. Maybe you've thought or said something like, love in the christian church yeah right i find more love in the lgbt community or my dungeons and dragons group or in really any other community if i want to know what love is i'm going to go to them not christians maybe there's some truth to that nobody shoots their wounded quite like christians do and for as much truth as there is in that critique We need to repent. So let's do that, let's repent. Me too. I've nursed grudges, held on to the need to be right, protected a bruised ego. And for that I'm sorry. I see Jesus called to love and I know that that is not something I've done well. 1 Corinthians 13, that description of love, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, those are boxes I have to leave unchecked when I think about the ways that I've loved my wife, loved my kids, loved my small group, loved my church family. Love as I have loved you? I haven't done that. But those words also demonstrate for each of us why Christmas is so special, so unique, as I have loved you, it means Jesus has already loved. In God, Jesus, in Jesus, God demonstrated his love for us first. He took the first step. He had you in mind when he loved the world. He came down off of his throne because you needed him to. Because he, you, he knew that you needed someone to serve you. Love other centered in Jesus? Check. He came into that manger knowing that the manger would eventually lead to a cross, a cross where he would hang and carry the burden of the weight of the sin of the world, of all human beings of all time. Love as sacrificial? Check. He entered in that manger knowing that it would be messy and hard, knowing that he would grieve and dance, he would sleep and weep. And he did it all anyway because he wanted to come close, he wanted to come into the mess, to be next to you in it. Love as incarnational check. That's why we call Jesus, why he describes himself as love. And that's why we can't love, nobody can love outside of Jesus because he completely redefines the category. In the the category of people who have loved, Jesus stands alone. And he chose to love you. You and I get to just be a reflection of that, to reflect some of the warmth from that bonfire in a cold night, reflect it into the lives of other people so that they might be warmed by it too. And that kind of warmth, that kind of love, is so attractive, so noticeable from the outside world that even in the early church, is what set them apart. One of the early church fathers by the name of Tertullian records this. He says, It is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand on us. See, they say, how they love one another, how they're ready even to die for one another, for they themselves will sooner be put to death. We get to be the window through which people maybe for the first time catch a glimpse of what it is to be the recipient of other-centered, sacrificial, incarnational kind of love. His command, his only command for us is to open the window. We get to be that for other people. So is there someone in your orbit who's eating Christmas dinner alone? Love them. Is there someone against whom you're holding a grudge or you know they're holding a grudge against you? Love them. Is there somebody who's suffering the nightmare of a blue Christmas discolored by grief? Love them. Don't worry about the bumper sticker, the t-shirt, the the money, the, the showing up on the weekend. That was never the way to show that we're disciples anyway. Because it's his love, not ours, that we have and we get to give as the greatest gift this Christmas season. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Timeless Truths. Whether you're a first-time listener or a long-time listener, we're glad you could join us. For more information or to support the work of St. Mark Ministries, check out our website at stmarkministries.com. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue our series, Grace is Coming to Town. And remember, you matter and you are loved.